This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. So every week I come into the quote unquote studio, which is just the office that Russell works at every day and there is a card in the desk drawer and it is of two otters and they are holding hands and I have seen this card every week and I look at the card and I touch the card and I open and look at the card and I'm like who is this card going to obviously the only correct answer is me and the inside of the card it just says we otter hold hands (laughs) which is so cute but it's not for a specific holiday but I've waited and all I can think of is what if one week I open this drawer and the card is not there and it wasn't for me you should just give it to him before you can give it to that other girl. Because <laughs> that's definitely what's happening. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real life creeps from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Well, if this isn't my Valentine's Day card, it's been forever. And I will, I will, people are going to be waiting for, with bated breath to find out if I get this card for. I've been waiting for a year for you to get this card. (laughs) I know. Well, keep us updated on um, Otter Watch. That's what we're going to call it. Otter (laughs) Watch. Secret Otter Watch. Secret Otter Watch. Hopefully, Russell doesn't listen to this. And if you do, give the card to your girl. Do you remember that radio show? What was it where people would call and it was like, you've won a dozen roses and the girl would be on the other lines? Yeah. Yes. To see where you sent it from. Mm -hmm. Oh, I would Mm -hmm. love to do that as a prank call. Like, I would love to call someone and be like, hey, you've won. But if you're getting that phone call, you know it's a prank, right? Or like so funny that you say that. It's so funny you say that because I would want nothing less than to be making that phone call. I would... I can't even call like my doctor to make an appointment, much less call somebody to prank them on whether or not they're cheating. (laughs) What? Are you kidding? I would love to like, yeah, yeah. oh man. I mean, I know this otter card has got to be for me, but like what is taking so long? He forgot about it. I know. It. It's like Barry. I keep He's like a- moving the car. It's, you know, like the nunchucks are on top of it. <laughs> you know, like I keep moving. Well, you gotta move it on top of the nunchucks. <laughs> Which if you noticed, I said none instead of numb. And if you are new here, don't ask any questions. Just <laughs> keep moving on. But I have strategically positioned the otter card, so. Stay tuned for next week. See, at least now, the listeners, if they only listen to this episode, they're at least coming back next week. Okay, yeah. They got it. We're, we're on Otter Watch. Otter Watch.
Before we start the Patreon, and I will get us on track, I promise. But I have one more burning okay. topic. Okay. Scott Eastwood, another Fast and the Furious movie. Is Was he in the Fast and the Furious? Okay. I don't know. But if he was in the one, wasn't there the one that just came out, F9? Didn't F9 just happen? No, nothing just happened. I mean, I saw the one or, where they drive the car to space like two or three <laughs> years ago. But wasn't that? Well, I guess F9? it was like a two year because it was like right after we started the Patreon. So I guess it was only yeah. like a year ago. Yeah. I think he yeah, was, was in nice. one, and how I didn't know that is beyond me. Because if anything is going to get me to watch, one, well, I'm looking at it fast. I think he was in the F9. one with um, Hobbs and Shaw when Hobbs, not okay, the movie quit. Hobbs and Shaw, but F nine, 2021. I think Scott Eastwood was in this, and if somehow. I could be watching Scott Eastwood, possibly shirtless, driving a car fast, and I haven't done that yet. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. But he's coming out in mm-hmm. another one. Or, or I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I've got three months to rewatch all nine of them, so that'll be fun. <sighs> I know. Like I need to- one a week. I could do one a week. <laughs> well, you know I really do want to watch them, but I, I watched the first one, and then I watched the second one. I love the second one, except that Tyrese kept talking about being hungry, and I know it was like figuratively and not literally, but it really tore me up. <laughs> we gotta eat. Cole Hauser is in the second one, and listen, my best friend for- forced me to watch the first episode of uh, Yellowstone, and mm. I'd been avoiding it for like forever because it just didn't seem like my thing. Like it's just yeah. not. But I didn't realize that Cole Hauser, like every, because I knew about Rip. Yeah, Everybody's talking right. about Rip. Oh my god, Rip, 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 Rip. I did not realize that Rip was Cole Hauser, and I would just like to say that I have loved Cole Hauser since Pitch Black when I was 13 years old. Who is so, Cole Hauser? I'm trying uh, to look I will him be up. watching. He's the bad guy in Too Fast, Too Furious. I can't tell if this cast is really everyone that's in F9, but if nothing else, John Cena is in it, and he is a terrible actor, <laughs> and I do love John Cena, so I cannot believe I've not seen F9, so it does sound like I will have to start. They drive a car to space. Oh, yeah, God. you gotta see it. <laughs> uh, I feel like maybe the listeners have forgotten, because, you know, now we're so deep in the Waffle House, but really, Fast and the Furious was the start of our personal brand. Like, mm-hmm. that really kind of... <laughs> yeah. Was where where we really got our got our start. It was an early mini creep, just fifteen minutes of us talking about the fast. Yeah, the if you haven't listened to that yet on the Patreon, you are missing out because it is <laughs> basically it was the very first Vin Diesel impression, and he has showed up on multiple episodes <laughs> since then as a special guest. He might uh, make an appearance next episode. Stay <gasps> tuned. Yes. <laughs> Love him. So, yeah, what else can you get on the Patreon, MoGab? You get our love and gratitude. You get a bonus episode every month at every level. And then that's starting at the $5 level. Then you move up to the $7 level. You get that monthly bonus episode. And then you get some mini creeps, which are sometimes true crime, sometimes unrelated, as in the Fast and the Furious. And you get a card and a decal sticker with signed by Kristen and I. And then the $10 level, you get all of that stuff. Plus, you get a discount on merch and you get the episodes ad-free and sometimes a little early. There you go. You got it. You got it down. I know. Look at me. Check that out for my performance review. (laughs) (laughs) I did it. All right. Let's get started with this week. This is a good one. Big thanks to Katrina for recommending this case to me. I had never heard of this case. And it is a wild one. 
For this one, we are going back in time. Back, 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 back in time. Back, back time. Oh, like old timey times? Like old timey times. You know, I love old timey times. Mm hmm. To December 30th, 1884. <gasps> oh my gosh. Just like 10 years after Delta Gamma was founded. Oh, cool. well. December 30th, 1884 was the beginning of a nightmare in Austin, <sighs> Texas. Oh no. Mm hmm. 25 year old Molly Smith was murdered in the middle of the night in her bed. Over the next 12 months, there would be seven more murders, almost exactly like it, all in the middle of the night, all shockingly violent. In the 1800s? Like in the late 1800s, were murdering people back then? Mm-hmm. This was potentially completely unprecedented. If you look up serial killers in the United States, you can find names going back to the 1700s, but they were like outlaw types. River pirates mm -hmm. that would go around robbing and killing. There were also like your slave torturers like Patty Cannon at the turn of the 19th century and Delphine LaLaurie in New Orleans. Belle Gunness. She was later, I think, wasn't she? Oh, I don't remember. 1900s, late, 18, late, late 1800s. Anyways, the most accepted definition of a serial killer is a person that kills three or more people over a period of time where there's not like a connection between the victims. So this is different, to me at least, from a family annihilator or a mass murderer or a spree killer. But it's not someone going around robbing banks and killing people. Like, that. Right. their primary goal is the bank robbery. And it's not right. a gang member killing multiple people for territory or revenge or whatever. It's not pirates. It's different. And they're not doing it for, like, social media or, like, news notoriety either. Because their name's, like, you know, you're right. going to get printed in right. the paper. Right. Like 20 people. Jack the Ripper and H.H. Holmes get a lot of notoriety for being like some of the first serial killers. If you Google first serial killer in the United States, the only thing that pops up is H.H. Holmes, who I know you don't know who he is, but he yeah, stalked like victims during Chicago's World Fair and was actively killing people in 1891. But there was an active serial killer in Austin Eight years before that, in 1884. Oh this gosh. is also three years before Jack the Ripper in London. And there are some experts who are convinced that Jack the Ripper and this guy in Austin, the Texas servant girl annihilator, were the same person. Oh, my God. Basically, what I'm saying is that Austin might be the first city in America to have a serial killer, and I never That's knew crazy. that. crazy. And yeah. it seems like no one really knows this case. It's been nearly completely forgotten in history. And so that said, the information out there on this case is almost nothing. <laughs> all of the publications on this case are getting almost all of their information just from the newspaper articles that were printed at the time. And that's really all there mm -hmm. is to go on. But there were a few good no sources. No Dateline episode. No Dateline episode on this one. There is, I'm doing Dateline next week, so don't, you know, <laughs> don't think I'm moving on up from Dateline, okay? <laughs> First off, our boy Skip Hollingsworth wrote an article in Texas Monthly about this case in July of Whoa. 2000 called Capital Murder. Get it? Because it was Austin, Capital, yes, Capital Murder. Yes, I got it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also used the book, The Servant Girl Murders by J.R. Galloway. But uh, to our reviewer, Liz, who will only listen if I use a book every week, <laughs> I don't want you to get too excited because this book is just a compilation of newspaper articles published <laughs> between 1881 and 1887. 
Man, the, we really flamed this girl. I, I'm so sorry, but like you really came far next and we're not going to let it go. So. But thanks the for calling author. me pretty. That was cool. But she thinks you're pretty. She thinks I'm pretty dumb is what she said. Yeah. Y'all, if you haven't seen, we got a new review and it, it was really nice. It's been really fun for us. So thanks. Oh, yeah. So the author of this book, J.R. Galloway, I believe he's a librarian at the University of Texas. All right, so hook let's, get in, let's get hook them. Let's get into what happened. First, we got to talk about Austin in the 1880s. I found this so interesting. I'm not usually like I like history sometimes, but I really got into this. So before the 1700s, Austin had been home to nomadic tribes like the Comanches and the Tonkawas. And in the 1700s, the Spanish set up some temporary missions in the area. And then in the 1830s, that's when the first Anglo settlers showed up and they set up a village and they called it Waterloo, which I feel (gasps) like a terrible Texan. I know I didn't either. In 1839, Waterloo became the capital of the new Republic of Texas and they renamed it Austin after the father of Texas, Stephen F. Austin. In 1845, Texas was annexed by the U.S. and Austin remained the capital of Texas. So we're talking 40 years after. Texas is a state, that's when this is happening. And the 1880s saw the largest growth in Austin until like the 2010s. I was just about to say, until like now, because good luck. Yeah. I just made that statistic up, but I'll bet it's true if anyone wants to fact check me. (laughs) I'll be fact checking you in two weeks when I'm trying to drive down 35. Guaranteed. Yeah. Well, I'll be there next weekend. So, or this weekend. Wait, me too. Wait, shut up. Really? Like this coming weekend? Like, oh, not the 25th? No, the 18th. Oh. The 18th. That's funny. We'll be missing each other by a weekend. <laughs> what are you going there for? My Just dad's going to be in town. It's my godfather's birthday. So, and he's going to be there. Oh. So I haven't seen him since like the summer, since I didn't get to see him over Christmas. So I'm excited. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In 1880, Austin was a cow town with a population under 5,000. Cows and hogs were running through the streets. But by 1884, Austin was bustling. The population had boomed to mm. a whole 23,000. And get and out Austin of here. had become <laughs> I know. And Austin had become an actual city. There were party line telephones and mule-drawn streetcars, restaurants, performances at the opera house, even an ice cream parlor, which I feel is pretty impressive for the late 1800s. That's yeah. fun. When did the university like, come? Yeah, we will, actually, in the next paragraph. Give me one sentence. Okay. They were working on what was promised to be the most elegant hotel west of the Mississippi, which was the Driscoll Hotel, which is still there on the corner of 6th Street and Brazos. Yeah. Public schools opened their doors in 1881, and Austin was also home to not just one, not just two, but three colleges at this time, which I feel like... It's very impressive. The University of Texas, of course, which opened the year before in 1883. And by the next year, it had 250 students, as well as St. Edward's College, which I didn't realize was that old. And that's where you went if you were an Irish Catholic immigrant. That was the school for them. As well as the Tillotson Collegiate and Normal Institute, which was a Southern, which was a college for black students, which was very progressive for a Southern Mm -hmm. state less than 20 years on from the abolishment of slavery, the mayor announced that mm-hmm. no city in the state had a promise of a more healthful prosperity. Austin was doing great. 
But as Austin grew and prospered, there was someone lurking in the shadows, stalking the women of the city. It started in December of 1884. Molly Smith was a 25-year-old black girl who had been working in the home of Walter Hall as a cook for about a month at this time. She'd come to Texas from Virginia when she was around 13 or so, and she'd gotten a job in Waco, which is about 100 miles away from Austin, working as a domestic servant in the home of the county tax collector. I believe his first name was Friend. Friend Ovid Rogers. That's kind of cool. I'm like, is that a typo? Maybe they meant Fred. But yeah, Friend Ovid. Or is that like a title? Like Pastor Ovid Rogers, but it's Friend Ovid. I don't know. Yeah, it was from like the newspaper article. So they didn't explain (laughs) because it was from the 1800s. She worked for him as well as his wife, two daughters, and son, Robert, who was like the same age as Molly. Around this time, Molly had a son named George, and it's speculated that George was Robert Rogers' son because after Molly moved on from that job, George stayed and lived with the Rogers family, and Molly went to Austin, but she would go back and forth between Austin and Waco pretty regularly in the early 1880s, which could not have been that easy or that cheap at the time. But I'm I'm not sure. I was just thinking that seems like quite a yeah, hundred miles to be traveling. I can imagine by mule, right? In early 1884, Molly got a job working at the home of Frank Woodburn, who lived just south of the university on what was called Chestnut Street and is now 18th Street. She worked there for a few months before she got the job at Walter Halls, uh, who was an insurance man from Galveston, and he lived at 901 West Pecan Street, which is now Sixth Street. He lived there with his wife and his wife's brother, Thomas Chalmers. Molly lived in a small apartment in the rear of the house with her boyfriend, Walter Spencer, whom she'd been with for several months. It was December 30th, 1884. In the middle of the night, around three or four in the morning, Thomas Chalmers, the guy's brother-in-law, he woke up in his room to see Walter Spencer, Molly's boyfriend, stagger into his room, bleeding from several wounds on his head. According to Thomas, Walter said, Mr. Tom, for God's sake, do something to help me. Somebody has nearly killed me. Thomas jumped out of bed. So formal, even when he's like wounded. Yeah, that's just kind of like the pattern of speech. Or that's how like he was relaying this message, you know. Yeah. Thomas jumped out of bed, horrified to see how badly Walter was injured. He asked him what happened, who had done this to him. And Walter said he didn't know. He hadn't seen. And Molly was gone. Thomas told Walter to go to the doctor to get his wounds dressed, and so Walter left, and I guess Thomas just, like, went back to bed. Like, he went back to sleep after Walter left to go to the doctor. Life doesn't happen biweekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. 
Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine, but the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. So at breakfast time the next morning, the residents noticed that Molly was missing, but it wasn't until around nine o'clock in the morning when another servant looked out the window and saw something strange in the backyard next to the outhouse. This servant and a few others ran outside to see what it was. It had snowed the night before, and there, laid out in the snow, was the body of Molly Smith. There was a gaping wound in her head from being struck with an axe, as well as wounds to her head, abdomen, chest, legs, and arms. (sighs) Oh my gosh, she's like mutilated. Yeah. Newspapers called it one of the most horrible murders that ever a reporter was called on to chronicle. A deed almost Mm. unparalleled in the atrocity of its execution. Molly had been murdered in her room, where she slept with Walter. Inside the room was clear evidence of a struggle. Broken glass, furniture tossed, bloody finger marks on the door. The pillows and sheets were soaked with blood. There was blood all over the floor. Mm. And next to the bed was a blood-stained axe, clearly the murder weapon. Oh, they, they just left it there. They left it there, and they brought it there because it didn't belong to anybody at the house. What investigators surmised was that Walter had been subdued, mal- like attacked while he was still asleep, get him out of the way. Then Molly was murdered with the axe, and then she'd been dragged outside and left 50 feet from her door. One theory at first was that Walter had something to do with this, but the papers all reported that there had never been any animosity between Walter and Molly, and that there wasn't any evidence to prove or even insinuate Walter's involvement in Molly's horrific murder. 
An ex-boyfriend of Molly's named William Brooks, he was another young black man, of course. He worked as a bartender on the same street as the Hall residence, and he'd known Molly in Waco before coming to Austin, and police thought maybe he'd killed her out of jealousy. So that afternoon, they tracked William Brooks down and arrested him. And Brooks said that he knew both Molly and Walter, and he liked them both, and he'd never even had an argument with either of them. He said he'd known Molly back in Waco, but he hadn't had anything to do with her in Austin, and he said he had an alibi. He was working a party on Sand Hill until 4 o'clock in the morning. How how are we tracking down ex-boyfriends in the 1880s? That's what I need to know. Like, now when they're like, Oh, we pulled up Samantha's ex-boyfriend. I'm like, oh, they went through her like DMs. Well, they only or they, they also only phone. have they only have twenty three thousand people to sift through, you know. So they're like, yeah, yeah. Her ex-boyfriend William, he works down at that bar. It's all right down here. People talking, rumors, yeah. things get around. Police then spoke to Walter, and the poor thing was horribly injured. There were five wounds on his face, including a puncture below his eye that fractured the bone. It was a terrible injury, but the doctors were hopeful of a full recovery, and Walter was able to give a statement to police even in this condition. And he told them that somewhere between 9 and 10, he went to Molly's room, and she asked him to wake her up early the next morning, and he said the next thing he knew, he woke up hurt, with no idea who had done this to him. He then ran to the doctor who lived nearby, who washed and dressed his wounds, and he said the only person that he'd fought with recently was William Brooks, the ex-boyfriend, and that had been around three months ago. But he said he couldn't say that it was Brooks that had done this. He said anyone could easily have gotten into Molly's room by going through the door that connected it with the kitchen. There was no lock on that door. The newspapers threw out theory after theory of who might have done this. Anyone connected with Molly was a suspect. This was the most heinous murder ever seen in the city, and people wanted answers. Walter Spencer wasn't a good suspect. His story made sense. If the Axemen had snuck in and struck him first, that first blow would have knocked him out, and he'd have no idea what had happened to him. And William Brooks yeah. was seeming less and less likely, as people that were at this party were confirming his alibi. He was there working until well into the middle of the night. Right. Also, I mean, yeah, it's just not like a, a motive. Yeah. So I'm Either not way. a history expert, and I learned something new, and I'm hoping I'm not like super mistaken about what this is, but at this time, it seems like murders were investigated using what was called an inquest, which is where a, cor a coroner and a jury view the body, examine witnesses, and reach conclusions about the cause and manner of death. So an inquest was held, and it lasted four days. And the jury's verdict at the end of it was that Molly was murdered with an axe and that William Brooks did it. But they had really no reason to think that. It's literally just the opinion <laughs> of the jurors based on no evidence except that he was the ex-boyfriend. There were no more murders for several months, but there was something going on in Austin that made everyone on edge. In March, a German servant girl had been attacked in the middle of the night by a white guy who demanded money and then beat her with a rock. She screamed for help and survived. Oh a few days later, another black servant girl was woken up by someone violently trying to take her door down. Her husband grabbed his pistol and shot through the door, which made whoever was trying to get in run away. And around that same time, at another home, two black servant girls were terrified by someone banging on their door demanding to get in. That person was also scared off. 
Instances like this were happening nearly every single night for months. But only to the black servant women? Mostly black servant women, some Swedish servants, some German, but all servant girls. One newspaper announced that a Swedish servant girl had been shot by a murderous miscreant at midnight. And when these instances continued happening, the papers declared the ruffians renew their devilish deeds. They were really leaning into the alliteration here. It's all over the alliterations here. The crimson catalog of crime by the foul fiends and their wicked work. I mean, (sighs) despite the poetic words of the newspaper, people were terrified. Someone or several someones seemed to have it out for the servant women in Austin. And despite the fact that it was happening constantly, police were nowhere near catching who was responsible. And then in May of 1885, so five months after Molly Smith was murdered, another black servant girl was murdered by an axe. Her name was Eliza Shelley. Eliza was born in Texas in 1857, and that seems to be one of the few pieces of information I can say for certain about her. She also definitely had multiple children, a daughter named Georgia, who was seven at the time of her death, as well as a six-month-old son. Uh, The newspapers, some said that she had three boys, but I don't think that's right. Her husband was in prison at the time of her murder, and he wasn't released until six months after her death. From what I can tell, it seems that she was living in a boarding house for people of color until getting a job as a cook for the family of Dr. Lucian Johnson, a former state legislator, on Cypress Street. Eliza and her children lived in a one-room cabin behind his cottage. Hmm. It was May 7th, 1885. Dr. Johnson's wife had heard screams coming from Eliza's cabin, and she'd sent her little niece to go check it out, because why not send the little girl uh, to go check out screaming? Oh. I don't know how old the little niece is, but they oh, called her out little. on you, ma'am. She, this little girl barely made it into the cabin before running quickly out, so the wife went to go see what was going on, and that's when she saw Eliza on the floor, dead, with a giant gaping hole in her head. That must have been done with what seemed like a hatchet or something at the time. There was another hole just over her ear as if a long, sharp instrument had been, like, stabbed in her head. Ooh, like like an ice pick or something. Yeah, yeah. Once again, there were very little clues for police in 1885 to work with. The pillows and sheets on the bed were soaked in blood, just like with Molly, and the room was completely destroyed, just like with Molly. There were two trunks that had been broken open and their contents tossed all over the room. The scene showed that Eliza was murdered in her bed and then dragged to the floor and wrapped in a blanket from the bed. This time, the killer hadn't left the murder weapon behind. It didn't seem he'd left anything behind that could identify him, except for a bare footprint in the soil outside the cabin. The foot was short and broad, and there was something else unusual about this footprint. The foot only had four toes. <gasps> well, that's something. Mm-hmm. Police kept that little detail out of the press, and that's really all police had to go on. Well, smart of them to keep it out, finally. <laughs> uh, it really was, yes. During the inquest into Eliza's murder, her kids were interviewed. The oldest, which newspaper said was an eight-year-old boy, but which the expert into the servant girl murder says was a seven-year-old girl named Georgia, 
She gave her story. She said a man came in the room and asked where her mother kept the money. And she told the man she didn't know. And the man then told her to cover up her head or he would kill her. And then said he was going to St. Louis in the morning. She couldn't say whether the man was white or black because he wore a rag over his face. But Mrs. Johnson, the wife of the owner of the house, right? she said he was white. And I'm not sure when Mrs. Johnson would have seen this man because the story was that she came upon the body later. But Mrs. Johnson testified at the inquest that Eliza was a person of very good character. And it's unknown what happened to Eliza's children. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Late in the afternoon on the day of Eliza's murder, Andrew Williams was arrested. He was 19 years old, black, and barefoot at the time of his arrest. But then I guess they let him go because a few weeks later, a black man named Ike Plummer was arrested. Mrs. Johnson claimed the murderer was white, but two black men have been arrested now. Ike was Eliza's boyfriend, and they were living together on Red River Street up until about a month before the murder, when they'd gotten into a huge fight and Eliza had taken the job with the Johnsons. So she'd only been working there for a few weeks. Like a little bit. Yeah. And the residents of Austin were taking notice of the lack of police intervention in these crimes especially the murders, but also all of these near misses. Apparently, there were only four cops on duty at any one time in the city, which, I mean, to me seems crazy. And then I remember, okay, well, there's only 23,000 people there. And the people, right. but the people were like, we have a problem here. And that's obviously not enough police to protect the city. Yeah. Like, people are literally getting murdered, like, frequently. Right. And also, the police chief was the son of a very powerful politician, and his only skill set seemed to be winning elections. The year before, a group of aldermen had even tried getting him impeached because of the 12 officers they had on the force total. Most of them spent more time in bars and brothels than they did doing their actual jobs. And there were yeah. also accusations that some of the officers had committed robberies. So if you're going to have 12 police officers, maybe... At least make sure they're upstanding. Make sure all 12 are... <laughs> yeah. As Skip yeah. Hollingsworth puts it in the Texas Monthly article, it wasn't exactly a crack squad capable of corralling a serial killer. <sighs> Citizens started trying to raise money to pay watchmen at night to guard the residential areas of the city. Then, on May 23rd, 1885, just a few weeks, like three weeks after Eliza's murder, another woman was murdered. Irene Cross was a 38-year-old black woman who was living in a small house on the property of a woman named Mrs. Whitman, who I assume she worked for. That wasn't ever directly stated that I could find. On Linden Street in Austin, the house had two rooms, and Irene slept in one with her adult son, Washington Cross, which I just think is the best name. Love the name. Yeah. And her eight-year-old nephew, Douglas, slept in the other. And her husband, Haywood Cross, had died sometime in the 1870s. I love that name, too. Haywood. Haywood. Haywood Cross. I mean, I feel like Cross is just a great last name. That night, Washington wasn't home, but Douglas was. So the older, the grown son was out, but the young boy was home. Apparently, Washington liked to stay out late, so he'd leave the doors unlocked so he could get in when he got home. The murderer would have had to walk through Douglas's room to get to Irene's. They were both woken up by the intruder and both started screaming. The man told Irene to stop screaming and then ran at her with a knife, slicing her on the arm and across her head. 
And she started screaming more, and the man rushed out of the house. And I, yeah, I'm never not screaming, you know, right? Like it's, just, it's not in my, no, ability. yeah, no, I'm screaming. Irene staggered <laughs> out into the yard, still screaming, which woke up the residents of the house, and they helped her in and called for a doctor. When police arrived, mm-hmm. Irene was still alive. They said that her arm was nearly cut in two, and it looked like she'd been nearly scalped. But she couldn't tell police anything about the man. Douglas was able to describe him as a big, chunky black man, barefooted and with his pants rolled up, wearing a brown hat and a ragged coat. And he seems to be like the only witness of any of these murders that actually saw the murderer. Saw something like, yeah. Yeah, and could describe that they could actually describe. Irene soon died from her injuries. And the attacks on servant girls continued. In June, a 22-year-old woman named Jane Coleman was shot at home. She screamed so loud that her employer, the owner of the house, ran to her apartment with a gun and the intruder fled, and luckily Jane survived. This was happening multiple times throughout the nights, almost daily. It was terrifying. My God. I just, like, wouldn't sleep, right? Like, you're just, like, sleeping in the day. But you can't. Well, you gotta working, work. Like I'm thinking, working. like, yeah. yeah. Like I'm like up all night. Like just like I'd in bed. change my job to nighttime if I could. I know. I guess they couldn't go work at the Waffle House. Waffle House wasn't founded yet. No, not yet. No, no Waffle Houses yet. At the time, if you were black and living in the South, Austin was probably where you wanted to be. It's not that racism wasn't prevalent. Of course, it still was. A black servant girl wasn't going to make as much money as a white servant girl. But there was a black university there. There were black-owned businesses on Pecan Street, which now 6th Mm -hmm. Street, including the Black Elephant, which was a very popular saloon, as well as a black grocery store. But these murders really started wrecking the city's race relations. The newspapers Mm -hmm. started claiming that this murderer had to be black and afflicted by idleness and drunk. Black men started making accusations that the hound dogs that had been trained, like by police to track mm-hmm. suspects, that they'd trained them to only track black people. They even started tying bags of, I don't know how to pronounce this, but asafoetida around their ankles, which is this dried latex from the root of a type of herb. There was this old folk remedy that said that it would throw bloodhounds off the scent. So they started all wearing them around their ankle. And at the time, bloodhounds were one of the few resources police had to track criminals, as unreliable Mm -hmm. as they may have been. Still good boys, though. Still good boys. But then the attacks seemed to stop for a couple of months, to the point where police thought that this madman might have left the city. But no such luck, because in August of 1885, there was another murder. This was the fourth, and this time it wasn't the servant girl who was killed, but her child. Oh, no. I know. Rebecca Ramey had three children, Minnie, Edward, and her youngest, Mary. Her brother, Mm -hmm. Edward Carrington, had opened Carrington Grocery Store on East Pecan Street. It was the black grocery on on what is now 6th Street. He'd opened it in 1872. And it was one of the very first black-owned businesses in Austin. Rebecca lived there at the grocer with her brother, her mother, and her kids. And it was a wonderful place for her kids to grow up. Mary had an uncle that ran a blacksmith shop next door to the grocery. 
and she was the center of attention in the family and the customers so who much came social, by the store loved her. Social yeah. interaction for the kids, too. She's Yes, she spent her days going to school and playing with her friends in the neighborhood, which was this bustling neighborhood for black families. A couple of years before the attack, Rebecca's family had sold or leased the grocery and moved the business a few blocks away. And so when that happened, Rebecca got a job as a domestic servant at the residence of Valentine O. Weed on East Cedar Street, now 4th Street, and she brought Mary to live with her on the property. Her older kids, Minnie and Edward, they were old enough to find jobs of their own and live independently at this point. So it was just Rebecca and Mary. On the night of August 31st, 1885, Rebecca went to bed around 9 o'clock at night. Sometime in the night, an intruder broke into Rebecca's bedroom, knocked her unconscious by hitting her in the head with a sharp instrument, and then grabbed 11-year-old Mary. He took her into the backyard where he raped her, and he then murdered her by driving an iron pin into both ears. It took her an hour to die. Oh my god. I know. What? I know. It's so terrible. Police brought the bloodhounds out and they found tracks that looked like they'd been made with bare feet. The dogs tracked them into an alley, to a yard, and back out again. Are there only four toes? I don't know. That was never mentioned because it was kept out of the newspapers. So, and that's really the only source of information we have is the newspapers. And they did not, like... Announce that fact. So they're too busy alliterating and rhyming over there. But considering that, I'm fairly certain that all of these murders, because they are so similar, that they were all the same person. I'm assuming there's four toes. Yeah, and the ground was very damp that day, so the footprints were easy to follow for a while. This led them to a stable where they found a barefoot man named Tom Allen. They measured his feet, which appeared to be a match, and he had no alibi for the time. But he was examined by a doctor who was certain that he had not been the rapist of Mary. Which in 1885, they called rape being ravished. And I hate it. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. You need to discontinue that word then. Ravit. Well, now it's like got a better connotation but back then right but yeah, i hate that lavish. that it used to mean rape i know and now it's i know i know I like that's worse. yeah i i agree like don't say i look ravishing oh god Ew. that means I, yeah that you look like i want to rape you oh i hate it i hate it i hate it we're never using that word again Mm-mm. rebecca never recovered from the death of her daughter she moved to east austin where she lived for the rest of her life with her daughter minnie and minnie's husband lee and she died in 1909 and minnie died just three months after she did oh less than a month later on september 28 1885 there was another murder two oh my more gosh. in fact how are we not catching this person i know it's one in twenty-three thousand. the odds aren't aren't terrible well and it keeps going down the twenty three thousand keeps going down and also it yeah. was definitely that guy tom allen yeah i don't know that was weird i don't know anything else about tom allen either wait what do you mean you don't know you don't know how you don't know who this is you don't know how this ends i have i have a i have a theory uh but yeah it's unsolved it's unsolved <laughs> it's jack the ripper that's not my theory by the way my theory is not that it's jack the ripper but i'll, I'm I'll like do I, should i know who that is He's the Jack. first one you said. We don't give me that face. We've covered this. You know Ted Bundy's the only one no. I know. 
No, I'm sorry. The, Jack the Ripper is too ingrained in pop culture. There is absolutely no what way pop culture am I consuming? Jack the Ripper. I know Chance the Rapper. Oh my god, that makes me sick to my stomach. I like my stomach hurts. Like, but you know what though? Jack the Ripper. He, oh. No, I've heard that. Na- no, no, no. I've heard the name. Okay. I just don't oh, know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I've heard the name. I just don't know. Oh, like, okay, who, okay. What does I know? He's a serial killer. I don't know anything about him though. Is his name well, actually I Jack? Mean, he was a serial killer. Nobody knows. Nobody knows who he is. Oh, wait. Yeah. People don't know his who he identities. is. No, his identity was never discovered. When was, is That's he dead? Why, yeah, I mean, this how was old, at the same, this was like three years after this is when he started. Oh, I thought he was like in the and he 70s was in London. or 60s. Oh. No, he was why in London. Why they call him the Ripper? Because he like tore apart prostitutes or sex workers. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. Like ripped their, That's like. awful. Okay, removed there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, no hand motions needed. <laughs> I didn't know that. I thought he was in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and I thought it was like in the '60s. I don't know why. I just Mm-mm. was making assumptions, I guess. Because <laughs> that's when all of them were. Were in the '60s. <laughs> yeah, 60s, just like that's what I. Yeah. Nope. Okay, so September 28th, 1885, another murder, two more, actually. This was the murder of Gracie Vance and her husband, are you ready for this, Orange Washington. Oh, stop. OJ. Orange, I know, OJ. Orange and Gracie lived in a small cabin that they were renting on the property of a man named William Dunham, and it was at 2408 Guadalupe. Guadalupe? Or do we say Guadalupe? I say Guadalupe. Guadalupe. Guadalupe is like short. It was 2408 Guadalupe Street. Guadalupe. Anyways, it's now the drag in Austin, if you know anything (laughs) about Austin. It's the location of the Urban Outfitters now. Stop it, for real? For real. I looked it up on Google Maps. (laughs) That's where this happened. And I was like, oh, it's the Urban Outfitters on the drag. That's where this was. Orange was from Virginia, the son of George and Mary Washington. But the family had moved to Brenham, Texas when Orange was a kid to work on a farm. Different George Gracie, Washington than the George Washington. Yes, different George. Yeah, different George Washington. Gracie was born in Texas in 1865, making her 20 years old in 1885 when this happened. Her parents were Eliza and Charles Vance. She was married briefly to a man named Albert Hall, who was a railroad worker, but then she met Orange. And it's my understanding that she and Orange were never formally married. It was more like a common law situation. So sometimes she's called Gracie Vance and sometimes she's called Gracie Washington. In the middle of the night on September 28th, 19... Oh, I said 1995. And that none of those, none of those numbers are right. 1885. <laughs> William Dunham, the property owner, heard a noise that at first he thought was Orange whipping Gracie, which he said unfortunately happened often. It sounded like a slap across the face. He woke up to check on them, but when he didn't hear anything else, he went back to sleep. And then around 1 a.m., he woke up to a sound that he said sounded like someone jumping through a window in the cabin, followed by a woman screaming. Dunham grabbed a gun and ran outside and saw a girl fighting off a man by the front gates. The girl was named Lucinda Bobby, and she and another girl, Patsy Gibson, had been visiting Gracie and Orange. And they were staying in the cabin with them that night, just by Mm. sheer terrible luck. 
After Lucinda managed to get away from this man she was struggling with, Dunham tried to shoot the man, but he was already out of range. And his next door neighbor, Mr. Duff, heard the commotion and called the police. And they actually came quickly enough to join in on the pursuit of the man. And they were all shooting at him. They emptied their revolvers at this guy, but they didn't get yeah. one shot on the guy and he escaped. God, I just don't understand how this man is this elusive. Like, I know. I everyone's know. got guns. There's not like yeah, getaway it's, it's cars. Like everybody, I don't know. it's not like I kind of expected when I went into this that these murders would have been ignored and kind of shoved under the rug because they were right. servant girls and they were black servant girls at that. But. The newspapers at the time were clearly taking this very seriously. All of the people were taking this seriously. And they are jumping out of bed in the middle of the night to go, mm-hmm. you know, try to catch him. And nobody can. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's crazy. I'm like, are people at this point like having a stakeout? Like, we're going to hide in the bushes and like wait for the uh, like, I don't know. I just feel like. I guess they don't know where he's going to hit. I know, but you got 23,000 people. At least get half of y'all out there peeping in Well, the- that's why they were trying to raise money for watchmen to come patrol the residential areas, but I don't know if that ever happened or not. When they all came back to the cabin, they found Gracie Vance, who had been beaten to death by, I believe, a rock, and then dragged out of the window, thrown over a fence, and then dragged another 75 yards from the cabin. Oh, a brick. A bloody brick was found near her body. Orange Washington was found lying on the floor or across the bed. I heard it both ways with an axe wound to his head. Unlike Walter Spencer, Orange's wound was fatal and he died. Dunham later found an axe under the blankets in the bedroom that he said was not his, that no one on his property owned an axe and it was covered in blood. He's just like leaving them behind. This is almost exactly like the Molly Smith murder, except he actually killed Orange because he didn't kill Spencer. Same, almost same exact thing. I think he tried. He tried to kill Spencer. Exactly. But he didn't die. Yes, that's what I mean. Like Walter just happened to survive. Both Lucinda and Patty were struck and they had gashes in their forehead, but both recovered from their wounds. Lucinda testified at the inquest that the murderer was a black man and she said she thought it was a man named Doc Woods based on his voice when he spoke to her as he beat her with what she thought were sandbags. She kept telling him, oh, Doc, don't do it. And he kept saying, God damn you, don't look at me. As soon as he stopped beating her, she jumped out of the window, and that's when Dunham found her. How would she know his name to be calling his name? Well, Doc Woods was somebody that they knew, was like a person that they knew, and that's who she thought this was. Based on his voice, I think. Yeah, based on his voice. So when Dunham found her, she said immediately that Doc Woods did it. So the police arrested Doc Woods, who was a friend of Gracie's and possibly Orange's. William Dunham recognized him as someone who frequently visited the cabin. When police went to arrest Doc Woods, the shirt he was wearing had blood all over it. Oh. They also arrested a guy named Netherly Overton who was the owner of, oh, did I say this or did I cut it out, that they had found a horse tied up? I didn't hear that part. I put it in here, but I guess I deleted it. So when the police and everybody come to chase off this guy, they notice there's a horse that's saddled and bridled, tied up by a tree, 
that oh, that's the getaway car <laughs> exactly that was the getaway car and they weren't sure if it was the murderers or what? if the murderer had stolen the horse but yes that was the getaway but either way car. that was the getaway car yes and so they arrested this guy netherly overton who was the owner of that horse that was found at the scene and he claimed that his stepson had taken the horse to the store and while he was inside uh the horse had been stolen a man named Oliver Townsend was also arrested because a witness said that he heard Townsend and Doc Woods planning Gracie's murder that night, and that he also heard Townsend talking about killing Rebecca Ramey just before her daughter Mary was murdered. But this mm. guy's testimony was later proven to be false, and he actually spent time in jail for perjury. Oh, dang. Patsy and Lucinda both testified that Doc Woods had come to the window of the cabin that night and asked to be let in, but Gracie wouldn't let him in. And Gracie had even told Patsy to go and get a gun and see who was at the window. And Doc said, it's Doc Woods. I want to come in and stay the night. But Gracie had refused to let him in. None of these people yeah. were ever prosecuted for the crime. It can be a very dangerous time when police are desperate to prove that they're not completely incompetent. It's a problem we still see today. The mayor announced a reward for the arrest and conviction of the person responsible, and they hired a team of private detectives. Some places That's what I mean. They're they taking Pinkerton. it seriously. Yeah. They like, really are. It's not just like, oh, these servant girls, like, how unfortunate, but too bad. I Yeah, it's not what I expected. I was... I was pleasantly surprised with how this was handled. I mean, I wish we would continue this trend today, please. But <laughs> the mayor announced a reward for the arrest and conviction. They hired a team of private detectives. Some places said that they were Pinkertons. The Texas Monthly article said that they were from Houston's Noble Detective Agency, which I Googled hmm. and had zero results. Like nothing came up with that. So. <laughs> Doesn't exist now. Yeah, this only, but there's also like nothing like historical about them, like nothing. Yeah, but this only seemed to make the police chief, his name was Lee, more determined, Oy. and not in a good way. One night in October, he walked into the Black Elephant, which was that black-owned saloon on what is now Sixth Street on mm -hmm. Pecan Street, and he was asking for a patron named Alex Mack who Lee said he had long suspected <laughs> of being connected to the to Mary Ramey's murder. And I think we need to remember that at this time, there was no even idea of a serial killer. It just didn't happen. It had never happened. So they're not yeah. looking at these series as necessarily like one person doing all of these things. I don't know I how don't much they're that. connecting them all together because they're like, we think this guy did this murder and this guy committed this murder. and. But they're not uh, good like point. Like we're thinking of them today, like that all linked. But like, mm -hmm. but they, they weren't. That wasn't no, a thing. It was not a thing. It didn't have a name. It had never been studied that these crime and and also they didn't know to look at a crime scene to get information on your killer. Maybe to get information on mm -hmm. the crime, but not to say, oh, he. He left this axe behind here and here, and he's always barefoot. So because of these reasons, to be quiet or sneaky or, you know, they like weren't looking at the crime scene in that way at the time. Mm -hmm. So anyways, he goes into the black elephant. He's demanded to see this guy, Alex Mack, who he thought had killed Mary Ramey for some reason. I don't know why. Mack went with Lee down the street where a bunch of detectives and officers were waiting for him. And they threw him to the ground, kicked him, tied a rope around his neck, 
and demanded that he tell them what he knew about the murders. Fortunately, a white man named Press Hopkins came out of his house at that time and saw what the police were doing and it stopped. They still took him to jail and kept him there for nine days while he got regularly beaten, even though there was no evidence that he was involved in this in any way. And this, like, you know, display of whatever you want to call it did not help stop these horrific crimes from happening. In early December of 1885, the district attorney, James Robertson, decided that Walter Spencer, the boyfriend of the first victim, Molly Smith, must have been the murderer of Molly. (gasps) Yeah. What? For real? Yeah. Yeah. And And he like butchered himself up too. Butchered himself, like an axe to the head. Yeah. Not like, oh, a little flesh wound. I scratched myself Mm -hmm. and gave myself a black eye. Like I took a hatchet to my forehead. forehead. Yeah. He put him on trial for murder. Imagine being that committed to something. Like, I'm going to take this axe. No. Mm -hmm. Like, right. No. And I mean, like, very easily could have died. Like, I mean, yeah. The trial only like, lasted. I'm not buying it. No. No, no, absolutely not. And the jury, even at this time in 1885, all white jury, I'm sure, also was not buying it. The trial only lasted two days because there was no evidence on him whatsoever. And he was acquitted, which is nice to see. There was a definite pattern to these murders. They might not have been picking up on it in the 1880s, but we know now that in every case, It seemed like the primary target was a black servant girl. When a man was present, the killer attacked the man with an axe. Walter Spencer had survived, but Orange Washington had died. The murders were all incredibly violent. In many, an axe was used and a sharp object was lodged in their heads. The victims Mm -hmm. were always killed inside, but often dragged outside. Yeah, that I'm confused about that and the weapon always being mm -hmm. left behind for the most part. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, but then on Christmas Eve, 1885, the pattern changed. According to a headline in the Austin Daily Statesman, quote, the demons have transferred their thirst for blood to white people. 45-year-old Susan Hancock was married to Civil War veteran Moses Hancock and had two daughters, Lena and Ida. The family had moved around Texas a lot, living in Brenham for a while, and then Waco, and then San Antonio, and then finally moved to Austin in 1885, just earlier that same year. They purchased a home on Water Street in South Austin, right where the Four Seasons Hotel is today. On Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1885, Lena and Ida, the daughters, they'd been out at a Christmas party and they were expected home late that night. And because of that, they left the doors unlocked. I guess, like, there weren't keys back then. I mean, it's like the 1880s, 90s, you know? Yeah. Moses Hancock woke up in the middle of the night with a sick feeling, like something was wrong. And as he came to, Mm -hmm. he realized that his house had been robbed. He felt around for his clothes, but his pants were gone. So he got out of bed and he made his way to his wife's room which another source said that Susan was actually sleeping in one of her daughter's beds that night. But anyway, he made his way to where she'd been sleeping, and he saw clots of blood all over the bed. But Susan was nowhere to be seen. The room, like all of the other rooms in all of the other murders, was completely destroyed, completely wrecked. 
He ran out of the back door and he saw his wife lying on the ground in a pool of blood. He picked her up and he started carrying her back into the house, calling for his neighbor to help. His neighbor, Mr. Persinger, quickly got dressed and ran out of the house to see Moses Hancock lying outside with his wife, who was just bleeding and mangled in his arms. Mr. Persinger helped Moses get Susan inside and a doctor was called and he found that her brain had been split open by an axe and a sharp, thin object was lodged in her brain. Moses had interrupted the murderer who'd run away when he'd come down the hall. So when he found her, she wasn't dead. Susan survived for three days, but on December 28th, she died from her wounds. Oh my God, three days? Mm Mm-hmm. How's that possible? Also, interesting that he yeah. didn't like that the murderer ran away and didn't try and kill Moses. I'm blinking on Yeah, well, it seems Moses, like he yeah. wasn't wanting to go fight men. He was attacking yeah. them first while they were sleeping. And I guess he so he that, found her sleeping alone. So that's why yeah. Moses was left. That's what I think. Well, I think we should have scheduled the story for a different night. <laughs> It was over a hundred years ago. About an hour. Still be creepy. Well, this guy's dead. Long dead. About an (laughs) hour after Susan's body was found, another woman was found dead in the wealthiest neighborhood in the city. This was Eula Phillips, and she was found where the Austin Public Library is today, a place I spent many summer days growing up. Eula's family were early settlers of Travis County. One of her grandfathers was a member of Stephen F. Austin's original colony. Her mother, her mother was a member of the Eanes family, which if you know Austin, you know that's the name of the fancy school district, Eanes, ISD. Mm. Her aunt was a member of the Slaughter family, which Slaughter Creek, Slaughter Lane in South Austin is all named after them. So big family. Eula's mother had died at the end of 1882 when Eula was just 14 years old, and less than a month later, she married 21-year-old James Phillips Jr. He was described as a handsome young rake, a talented musician who played the violin. It's speculated that this must have been an arranged marriage, and she was quickly moved into the Phillips family home in Hickory Street, which is now 8th Street, just west of downtown. And this must have been a traumatic time for poor Eula. She's 14 years old. Her mother dies. She's immediately married off and sent to live with this strange family. And then almost immediately, she gets pregnant. In January of 1884, when she's like 15 or 16, maybe, she gave birth to a son she named Thomas after her father. A year later, James and Eula moved to a farm in Williamson County owned by a man named George McCutcheon, who was a friend of Eula's father. Most likely, McCutcheon had offered steady work to James, and that was the reason for the move. Two months after they moved in, McCutcheon's wife died, and then a few months after that, McCutcheon got Eula pregnant. He was (gasps) 36. She was maybe 17 at the time. No. He mm-hmm. bought some pharmaceuticals that would cause an abortion. So They had that back then? Yeah. It was like they had the whole ingredients list of what was in it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. just after that, James and Eula moved back in with James's parents. And it's reported that Eula, whose best friends called her Luli, was 
very unhappy during this time. James was a heavy drunk. Yeah. James was a heavy drunk and he was abusive toward Eula. He'd once thrown a cup at her and then he'd once chased her with a knife. One time he became so angry at Eula and his sister Delia that they ran out of the house crying for the police. Eula started sleeping in the parlor or sometimes she would go and stay at her older sister's house for days hiding from James. And James was constantly accusing her of cheating. Which she was, and she wasn't really even being all that discreet about it. She'd started sneaking. Well, I mean. Right. Yeah. She'd started sneaking out and going to May Tobin's House of Assignation, which was located at the end of Congress Avenue. Assignation houses were private residences where the owners would basically rent out rooms by the hour. And they came with a level of discretion that local hotels did not. It's where the high-priced sex workers went, or just rich people that were cheating on their spouses. Eula had been there half a dozen times in the fall of 1885, and just a reminder, she's like 17. She was meeting up with a 27-year-old man named John Dickinson, who was single, attractive, wealthy, and (laughs) well-connected. In November of 1885, she ended up leaving James and taking her son to stay at another assignation house run by a black sex worker named Fanny Whipple. While she was gone, James got his act together. He stopped drinking. He got a job. He bought some furniture, they said. Oh, that's big. Did he not have any before? I don't know. (laughs) Honestly, probably not. Right. I was like, was it blow-up furniture? But again, 1800s. (laughs) (laughs) Was it a futon? A A beanbag? (laughs) Yeah. Tell me more. At the beginning of December, he traveled to Elgin to convince Eula to come back to Austin with him, and she agreed. But then on the night of Christmas Eve, so this is just like a couple of weeks, three weeks after he'd convinced her to come back, Eula once again snuck out of the house and made her way to May Tobin's, accompanied by some unknown person. And she asked May for a room that night, but there were none available, so Eula left. And an hour later, she was found murdered. She was naked. Well, she was on her way back. What? From the hotel. She didn't get to the, there was no room in the hotel. Yeah, she was on her way back back home home from the, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. She was naked, lying in an unlit alley behind James's family's house where they were living. James was in the house, in their bed, with a severe gash in the back of his head. Their 18-month-old son was in the bed with him, unharmed, holding an apple. Hmm. There was a trail of blood leading from the bedroom to Eula's body outside. So it seems like she actually got home, went to bed, and then was, like, immediately murdered, like, within an hour. But, I mean, how, like, exact are these times back then? Yeah, I mean, you don't know. know. Like, they're checking the GPS status on their phones. Right, right, yeah. Her skull had been bashed in by an axe, and heavy pieces of wood were placed across her arms like someone had used them to keep her pinned down during the attack, and she had been raped. After the murder of two rich white women in the same night, the city held a meeting on Christmas Day that was attended by more than 500 city and business leaders, lawyers, doctors, and clergymen who met to come up with a plan to stop these killings. On Christmas Day? On Christmas Day of 1885, 
they tripled the size of the police force. So they had like 48 cops now. Wow. Police started question. They they made up this new law that police would question any man that they saw out and about. And if he couldn't give a good account of himself, he had 24 hours to get out of the city. Oh, that seems weird. Let's just push it to another city. Let's not arrest him, but let's. Right. Well, I mean, they did nothing wrong. Right. How do you. uh, I feel like whoever it is joined the police ranks. Like, how do you really know? You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, they don't know. I guess check uh, how many toes, how many toes you got. Yeah, that'd be my thing. <laughs> they passed a law that said all saloons and liquor stores would close at midnight. They talked about lighting up the entire city at night with huge lamps and setting off fire alarms whenever the next attack occurred so everyone would come out of their house fully armed. Almost 10 years after this meeting, Austin would install the Moonlight Towers which are 165-foot-tall towers that illuminate a 1,500-foot radius brightly enough to read a watch. And they're still there. Mm. They're the only known surviving moonlight towers in the world. And people say that they were put up as a response to the servant girl murders. They weren't put up until 10 years later, but I think that this is where the idea for them first began. I've never even, I didn't even know that was a thing. I've never even heard of those. No, I didn't know that either. Wait, what other cities? had them like other cities like detroit i know had them because the moonlight towers that we got we actually bought them they were used from detroit do they work still i mean i know they don't use them Uh like if Uh they needed to they could light her up yeah i think so yeah which is pretty impressive for 1880 what not 1895 would have been when they were there but i mean like i wonder when they the last time they've been used I don't know. I'm going to do a There is a Wikipedia article about them. I read like a little bit little about them. Yeah. I'll add that but to this, my to read page. Yeah. But this meeting ended up actually being totally pointless because after the Christmas Eve murders of Susan and Eula, it all stopped. Yeah. Year, because you know why? Because he was there. He was at that meeting. <laughs> a year almost to the day after the first servant girl murder, As suddenly as it had all started, it completely stopped. But people had still had so many questions, and they were determined to find the person or persons responsible. Nearly a dozen black men were arrested for these murders within days, but they didn't have any evidence on any of them. The governor offered rewards for the arrest of the murderer, which they then decided was Eula's husband, James Phillip Jr., They didn't claim he was responsible for all the murders, just that of his wife, despite the fact that he had an axe wound in his head, just Mm -hmm. like Walter Spencer. He was portrayed at trial as violent and jealous, which he probably was, and that his motive was that Eula was having an affair, which she was. I mean, weren't most guys back then, I'm sorry, weren't they all kind of like saloon drunks that were pretty... uh Yeah, I mean, not an excuse, yeah, but... No, I know, but I mean, like... Line them up. Who's not violent? You're going to say they all did it? Yeah, exactly. Right. At trial, they compared his footprint. This is actually a really funny story. They compared his footprint on the floor with the bloody footprint found on the floor of the Phillips house. But his foot was too... Yeah. But his foot was too small. So they said, well, yeah, it's too small because... But he was carrying Eula when that bloody footprint was made. So he'd have been pressing down harder on the floor 
and the footprint would have been bigger. And so James had to pick up his attorney and like carry him around (laughs) and do the footprint again. And it still was not a match for the footprint. And he ended up convicted of the murder anyway, probably because a witness testified that she'd heard James threaten Eula. And a doctor testified that the gaping axe wound in his head could have been self-inflicted. And like, yeah, it's it's physically possible to bang your head with an axe. But like, come on. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I'm also glad that, like, a threat isn't the litmus test over here because the amount of times I'm like, if you don't fold these clothes, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Right. Well, it could be, so don't let him be murdered. I won't. (laughs) He was only sentenced to seven years for it anyway, which it's like, if you're going to convict him for this murder, you're seven years. But the conviction was overturned six months later by the Texas Court of Appeals because they said that the prosecution never gave any evidence that James knew about Eula's affair, and therefore they couldn't use any of the evidence of the affair at the trial because they never proved that he knew about it. Susan Hancock's husband, Moses, was also arrested for his wife's murder, but his case was dismissed. But then after James was convicted, he was rearrested. And Susan's sister testified at a preliminary hearing in June of 1886 that Moses Hancock was a drunk and that he'd been abusive towards Susan. Their daughter Lena testified that Susan had written about leaving Moses and that she was afraid he was going to kill her. He was indicted and his trial began on May 30th, 1887. But the only thing that they could prove was that Moses Hancock drank too much. And so the case was dismissed. It probably helped that he was represented pro bono by John Hancock, no relation, who was one of the Mm. best lawyers in Austin and a former U.S. congressman. No one was ever imprisoned for any of the eight murders, apart from the six months James Phillip Jr. did. But that doesn't mean there aren't theories. And my favorite involves a guy named Nathan Elgin. So Nathan came into the picture a couple of months after the murders of Susan and Eula. It was February of 1886, and a saloon in East Austin was in an uproar. A drunken, raging man had dragged a girl from the saloon to a nearby house where people could hear him beating her and cursing at her while she screamed for help. The entire neighborhood was out in the streets trying to figure out what was going on, and a police officer named John Bracken showed up. And he went with the saloon keeper, Dick Rogers, and a neighbor, Clabe Hawkins, to stop the man from beating this girl to death. And they were able to pull the man off the girl and got him into the front yard and got him into handcuffs. The man put up quite a fight. He even pulled out a knife. But Bracken pulled out his gun and fired. (gasps) This man was Nathan Elgin. And he had absolutely no reason that anyone could see to be this rage-fueled toward the girl whose name was Julia. Elgin was instantly paralyzed from the shot from John Bracken shooting him, and he died the next day. And during his autopsy, the doctors noticed something interesting. On his right foot, he was missing a toe. He only had four. Wait, when was he shot? February 1886, two months after Susan and Eula's death. Oh, and then it all stopped. And then it all stopped. That's so unsatisfying, though, you know? Like, sure. I mean, it's just some guy. Like, yeah. That's how I feel no, about but people I mean, that are just trying like, to figure out 
they oh, don't, that we like, don't like, know for sure. I mean, but like we do, but like, yeah, he doesn't have to yeah. answer to any of that. There's no like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. Nathan Elgin is the most likely suspect to be the servant girl annihilator. And it's I'm, I'm not saying that I'm not the expert on these. The experts, experts, the one that I looks, looked at the most, servantgirlmurders.com is the website he maintains. <laughs> He's into this case. He said Nathan Elgin is the most likely suspect. He had four toes. The annihilator had four toes. The footprints at the scene of the crime were similar in other ways as well. And since Nathan died, there have been no other servant girl murders. Also, what? how he, are you not the expert? How, I mean, I just feel like every time you're like, I'm not an expert. But like, I read, I spent, I spent I twelve like hours reading about it. I'm not an expert. I, I know, I, I know a lot more about it than I did last week. But <laughs> I haven't spent years of my life diving through all of this information. That's what I consider an expert to be. You're such a slacker, though. I know. Truly, truly. I didn't. <laughs> I barely even read a book for this one. <laughs> mm. And next and next week it's a Dateline episode. So <laughs> don't tell Liz. Get ready, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> also, he fits the criminal profile. He was clearly violent, clearly a massive tool, yeah. and hated women. Uh, at servantgirlmurders.com, there is a whole page that breaks down the criminology of Nathan Elgin, and it's pretty convincing. And that source is linked in our show notes. So that is the Austin Servant Girl Annihilator. I can't believe I had never heard of this guy. That was something. It was cool to hear about the time, like how much Austin has changed in like all of the streets. And then it was like so mm-hmm. sad about just like the amount of murder in such a short time. But then also like really interesting to hear how they handled it better than like you said, I would have thought. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you want to support the podcast, uh, you can find us on Instagram at Creepers Pod. Join our Facebook discussion group, True Crime Creepers discussion group. We have a lot of fun in there. You can also find us on Twitter at Creepers Pod and Patreon, patreon.com slash True Crime Creepers. If you want some extra bonus content, check us out over there and make sure to subscribe so you'll know exactly when our next episode drops when I'll tell Mogab another wild story. Like the real That's Vin Diesel or just his voice? Oh, you'll have to see. Spoilers. Not the real Vin Diesel. Okay, not the real Vin Diesel. Okay, okay. <laughs> God. Bye, peeps and creeps. <laughs>